drop that in there. Uh, if you came prepared to give, uh, thank you for your generosity. You can drop that in the red box also. Okay. Uh, they're having a good time in there. It's a little construction going on. Nothing to worry about. Uh, the story week three. Uh, disappointment. You ever been disappointed with anything? Uh, uh, Nick's like, no, never. I don't know what you're talking about. Shaking his head at me. Uh, one time, Brandy and I were in Seattle with our kids for the weekend. Uh, this was just like two years ago. And our kids had never been to Chick-fil-A. Uh, who's been to Chick-fil-A before? Okay. Um, so you know, like, everyone who has their hand down has not experienced life yet. You get it. So we took our kids to Chick-fil-A on Saturday night for the first time ever in their life. And they loved it because who doesn't love Chick-fil-A? Uh, and they loved it, and they were super excited. And I'm excited because it's like Disneyland for me, for sure. Uh, and uh, so I was like, the next morning, I was like, hey, you guys want to go to Chick-fil-A again? And they're like, yeah, dad, let's do it. They're pumped up. And so we drive to Chick-fil-A. We pull into the parking lot. And guess what I realized when we got there? It's closed on Sunday. I knew that, but I'd forgotten. And I was so disappointed. It was like the ultimate zonk gift right there. And the disappointment just like washed over the whole van. And I had been like riding high, but all of a sudden I felt like I'm a complete failure as a father right now. I just set my children up for total, total disappointment. Well, today we're going to talk about a guy named Joseph. He appears really early in the biblical narrative. And if you've ever been disappointed in your life, which is everyone, uh, Joseph's story is going to mean something to you. Joseph knows about disappointment. Uh, try to think of maybe something a little bit more serious in terms of disappointment. You ever, been, you ever been stuck waiting for God to come through on something? Just waiting and hoping, kind of powerless? Uh, maybe had a job interview and you're waiting for the call to tell you if, you if you got the job or not? Or maybe you had a doctor's appointment and you're waiting for the diagnosis? You're waiting to hear back on that? Uh, maybe something uh, really serious like waiting for someone you love to come home. Someone that you, you don't know what's going on in the relationship. You just know they're not around. You're waiting for someone else to make a decision that impacts you. If you've ever experienced the agony of waiting for a breakthrough, sometimes it seems like it'll never come. It feels so long. And this week's story is going to mean something to you for sure. So think of a time when you were waiting for something to change. And you didn't know how it was going to work out. Maybe it's right now. Maybe it's going on right now in your life. There's a dynamic that's just, uh, it's getting the bulk of your thoughts. You just, you feel the pressure. Uh, maybe you're waiting right now and Joseph is your guy. So here's what's happened in the story so far. We started out week one was creation. God created everything and it was all good. He made everything all very good. And, and of course, the antagonist enters the story pretty quickly. If you've read the first couple chapters of Genesis, you, you're familiar with Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden, and God says, don't eat, do whatever you want, but don't eat off that tree. And of course, Satan comes and tempts them, and, and they do. And pretty quickly, in a span of about 1,100 years, humanity goes from all good to only one good at Noah. It says that Noah was the only person who found favor in God's eyes. And God reboots all of humanity with Noah and his family. And then uh, he begins to build a nation with Abraham. We talked about Abraham last week. And God gave Abraham a son in his old age. That son's name was Isaac. Uh, and through Isaac's family, God was going to bring the Savior of the world. Isaac had a son named Jacob. God later changed Jacob's name to Israel. So if you hear Israel in there, you'll, you'll know that's the same person. 
And then Jacob had many sons, the youngest of whom, when we pick up the story today, was named Joseph. Joseph had a lifetime of wading through hardship. Two things to know about Joseph. One is that his family was jacked up. Who knows who Jerry Springer is? You remember Jerry Springer? That's my generation. I'm pretty sure Joseph's family was the inspiration for the Jerry Springer show. Crazy, crazy stuff. You'll read about it if you take a copy, read chapter three this week, you'll read about it. The other thing to know about Joseph is that in spite of all the craziness that are happening in his life, he's, he's one of the most integral people you will ever encounter. Like in all of human history, Joseph kind of stands alone, except maybe Jesus. He was pretty integral too. Um, but, but Joseph, think about it. Like he spends his life, his early life being hated, and he doesn't hate back. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't let his own heart become consumed by it. And then later on, when he's, when he's blessed and he's prosperous, he doesn't become arrogant. He uses it to bless other people. When he's tempted to stay home from church because there's a 10 a.m. Seahawk game, no, he doesn't cave in like my man Mike, right? You all, you're here. Okay, so you got something in common with Joseph. Here's, here's the thing. When life comes apart for Joseph, Joseph doesn't come apart. Does that make sense? When life comes apart, he doesn't. He stays on course. He's decided who he's going to be, and he stays on that path. Some of the biblical figures we read about as you go through the Bible, uh, some of them uh, teach us that even the worst of us are loved and forgiven by God, which is really great news. But some of us teach us another lesson, which is that even the best among us have hard times. Both of those things are true. Joseph is the latter. So Joseph is the son of Jacob. God identifies himself 217 times in the Old Testament as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If that went to the fourth generation, Joseph would be the next guy. So uh, Joseph is the favored son of his father Jacob, or Israel, and he's a bit of a miracle baby. He was born to uh, Jacob and Rachel in their old age. Rachel was unable to have children her entire life uh, until Joseph was born in their old age. In Genesis 37, verse 3, this is what it says. It says, Now Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Jacob had other children, not with Rachel. Uh, he had 11 other sons. Uh, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him. Now, this is a tough start for Joseph. It's good in some ways. He's the favorite. Uh, but he's got 11 brothers who hate him. Uh, a few years ago, we decided we were going to take our kids to Disneyland. Brandy's been bothering me to take our kids to Disneyland since before we had children. Literally. Years before we had children, actually. Uh, and so we finally said, okay, you know, it's not necessarily in the budget, but we're going to work it out. We're going to stay for it. We're going to make it happen. So, uh, so it was a Christmas present. And Brandy did this thing. She, like, she made like a puzzle that had kind of a map on it. So they would, like Christmas morning, they put the puzzle together and find out that we're going to Disneyland. And we weren't going to go until a couple months later. Uh, but it was this whole thing. It was a really good idea. You did a great job with the baby. So they get the thing out. They put it together. There's like our house and like the whole Western United States with a dotted line, like a treasure map. And at the end, there's these big mouse ears, right, in Cal Southern California. I think any of us can do the math on that. But we also put like other landmarks of things that we might be able to see because we were thinking we would drive, which we ended up not doing. One of them was we put the Chick-fil-A sign. Uh, right, I know, you guys are like, what is wrong with him? Uh, I love Chick-fil-A, get off me. And uh, so they get the map together and then they just stare at it. Like this is literally their reaction. 
So which is kind of anticlimactic for us, right? Like it's Disneyland, people. Pull yourself together. Get excited. And uh, so I asked the question, do you guys know where we're going? And in unison, all three of them said, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A. Do you not see the dumb mouse ears at the end of the dotted line? Um, yes, but we were just really excited about this other thing because you've been talking about it so much, Dad. Okay, so, so if Disneyland was the Christmas gift for one of our kids and the other two got socks, that's what it was like every day at Joseph's house. That's what it was like. So you can imagine why his brothers hated him. They hated him because his father loved him more than them. At 17 years old, Joseph has these dreams. Genesis 37, verse 5, it says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright, while yours gathered around mine and bowed down to it. I could see why that would rub them the wrong way. I think that's fairly obvious. Verse 9, it says, Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, of course, the symbolism is mother, father, and brothers bowing down to him, right? And it says that because of his dreams, his brothers hated him all the more. Now, I'm just going to go out and reveal my soul right now and say, I don't think his brothers are on, like, the totally wrong track. I mean, I can see how they would get there, right? That... It's not illogical. Uh, but he told the dream to his, brother, his father as well. And in Genesis 37, 11, it says, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. I think there's a pretty solid kind of ground level lesson for us, right? We're, we're examining the story, the high level story of what God is doing in all of humanity. But, but just for us at the ground level right here today where you live, uh, I love what his father does. Uh, He kept the matter in mind. He could have been angry. He could have been irritated. He could have said, yeah, right, kid. I love you, but seriously. Uh, Sometimes we act really impulsively. Sometimes I do this. I'm sure you don't. Uh, Out of emotion rather than giving the situation an opportunity to breathe a little bit. Rather than attempting to kind of figure out what's God doing right here, sometimes we just act out of emotion. And a really good lesson that we can learn from Joseph is just that. Don't be impulsive. Allow your situation time to breathe so that you can see what's God doing. The book of Romans tells us that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Give the situation room to breathe. Uh, wait and see what God is doing. Wait and see how he's working through the difficulty. 42 years of being on the planet tells me that's what's usually happening. He's working something different out. So in Genesis 37, Joseph's brothers do what you and I would do. They decide to kill him, literally. Uh, They decide to kill him. But one brother named Reuben says, you know what? That might be a little bit over the top. Uh, Why don't we just throw him down in this empty well and just leave him for dead? Well, Reuben's idea is, I'll come back and save him and help him escape when the other brothers are gone. Now, that was his plan. But before he could do that, one of the other brothers had an idea. They said, you know what? Let's not do either of those things. Let's sell him off to slave traders, uh, and he'll be gone. We'll tell our parents a wild animal killed him or something like that. There'll be no worse for the wear, and it'll all be fine, and Joseph will be out out of our hair. So that's their genius idea. And so they sell him off to these slave traders. Uh, who happen to be, coincidentally, Ishmaelites. Uh, The significance of that, of course, if you back up a few generations in 
Joseph's family. Joseph's grandfather was Isaac, and Isaac had a half-brother named Ishmael. So they're kind of actually in the same family tree. Uh, Ishmael was the patriarch of Islam. Uh, so the, the two sides have actually been at each other ever since. Like the foundation of Judaism and Islam basically say uh, Jews believe that uh, Isaac was God's promised son. Uh, Muslims believe that Ishmael was God's chosen son. And so they, that's, where, that's where it all began. Uh, and the friction has existed ever since. So they, they sell Joseph off to the Ishmaelites and, and they're going to haul him off to Egypt, which was the dominant world power at the time. And they're going to sell him into slavery. So Joseph had these dreams of doing something great, of being something great. Uh, I think all of us have, have hoped for that to happen in our lives. But now, all of a sudden, he went from being the favored son in a large, influential, affluent family who dreams of literally having control and authority and affluence. Uh, he goes from that to now being bound up and carted off to be a slave in Egypt. Okay, so crawl into what that was like as he's riding along or marching along onto his, on his way to Egypt. Imagine the emotion that he's feeling right now. Imagine the despair. Have you ever experienced the death of a dream? You thought life was going to be like this and then it turned out, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think I'm going to get there. Have you experienced the death of a dream before? That's painful. Uh, that's extremely painful. And that's where Joseph is at right now. Imagine his disappointment, his despair, his fear, uh, being disappointed. This is the disappointment that one of the most integral people who's ever lived experienced. He's being hauled off into slavery. He was a good, righteous person, and he, even he experienced disappointment. So when you read the story this week, just try to crawl inside of what it would have been, what it would have been like for this, this young man who had so much promise and so, ahead, so much ahead of him to be carted off into slavery. Try to try just get inside what that was like. And something interesting happens when he gets to Egypt. It's on page 31 in the story, Genesis 37, verse 6. It says, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Captain of the guard is, uh, is English speak for the chief executioner. So not only is he sold into slavery, but he's sold to the guy in the black hood. That's like insult to injury. If it couldn't get worse, that's where he ends up. Uh, but Joseph does what we rarely do. He makes the best of it. I look at that and I think there's not much to make the best of. But Joseph decides, I'm going to grow where I'm planted. And even as a slave, he puts his best foot forward. Uh, if you want to know what a person of high character looks like, I'd say that's a great place to start. But pay really close attention to the next phrase. It's in Genesis 39, verse 2, just a couple lines down from where we just read. Because this phrase is going to dictate the rest of Joseph's behavior. Okay? It says, the Lord was with Joseph. So that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Okay, remember back at the beginning, Genesis 1-1, chapter 1, two weeks ago, we said, if you believe the first four words of the Bible, uh, that kind of changes everything, right? If you believe that in the beginning, God, if you believe that there's a sovereign God over everything, that's going to change the way you view your world. Well, this is kind of the same way. If you believe that there's a sovereign God over everything and he's with me, that's going to change your behavior, is it not? If God is, if God is with me, that's going to change how I respond 
to different situations. So try this exercise with me. Try to imagine uh, that you're like outside your life, but you're looking at you, okay? Your face, you're looking at the person who is dealing with all the things that you deal with right now on a regular basis, the things that are getting the bulk of your thought life, okay? So if you're outside of that experience, kind of like George Bailey, you know, and It's a Wonderful Life, how he like got to look down at his life, greatest movie of all time. There was like three smiles who agree with me and the rest of you are wrong. It's the best movie ever. What would you tell you to do with your current situation? If you were just outside of the situation and you knew that God is with that person, God is with me down there, what would you tell them to do? What should they do with their present circumstances? How would you advise them? And would it be different than what you're currently doing with your situation? What would you tell them if you knew that God is with them? Well, Joseph decides, I'm going to make the best of it right here while I'm waiting for God to deliver me. I'm going to, do, I'm going to make the very best of this situation because I know that God is with me and he's going to come through. But in the meantime, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be faithful to him. I'm going to listen for his voice so that when he does come through, I'll be ready to go. Genesis 39, verse 3, just a couple lines down from where we were. It says, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became Potiphar's attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So, so far, we like Joseph. He's a good guy. He's a good kid. Uh, we feel bad for him, for sure. But at least it's looking up a little bit. Like, he's found some favor, you know. We kind of get a little bit of relief there. Like, all right, well, at least something good is happening. Uh, you know, it's not like being tortured out in a dungeon somewhere. He's found a little favor. He's got something useful to do with his time. We feel bad for him, but we like him. But if you've read the story before, which some of you have, uh, you know a couple of things. One, you know that God has a greater plan in mind and he's working toward it. But you also know that it's going to get a lot worse for Joseph first. Which begs a hypothetical question. What if God came to you and said, I got great plans for what's going to happen with you, but you're going to have to go through some pretty hard times to get there. What would you say to that? How would you respond to that? Like, I got, I kind of like where I am. Like, I'm, I feel like at least safe and my needs are met. I don't know that it's really worth like going through all these things. Like, if you knew in advance, what would you say to that? If Joseph knew in advance, what would he say? Well, Joseph does, decides that he's just going to live by faith. Apparently, that's all he knows. And he just decides, you know what? God is with me, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to proceed. Apparently, he just knows how to be faithful. That's all, that's all he really knows. Well, the next test comes Well, he's living and working in Potiphar's house when Mrs. Potiphar ends, enters the scene. Uh, Potiphar entrusts him with everything, and uh, Mrs. Potiphar comes on the scene, and because of the cultural norms of the day and Potiphar's position, she's probably something of a trophy wife. And when he's gone, she takes a liking to Joseph, and she's just continually trying to lure Joseph into her web. Uh, the NIV says that she was trying to get Joseph to come to bed with her, uh, which is like... Um, not nearly as aggressive as what the original language says. Like, that's what my mom would say if she was translating it, right? You'd probably go somewhere along those lines, family-friendly. Just, just surmise it to say this, she's aggressively trying to seduce Joseph. And this is his response, Genesis 39.8. How could I do such a wicked thing against God? Now think about where he's at. What real reason does he have to not cave? 
Um, there's not really anywhere down to go for him. Like, he doesn't have a lot to lose. I mean, he's not at the bottom, but, but he can jump from here for sure. Like, it's not, it's not that far. If he gets caught, the fall's not going to be that bad. So what reason does he have to not give in to the temptation, to not seize opportunity? The reason he has is that in the beginning, God, there's a sovereign God out there, and he's with me. That's, that's his reason to stay on course. So he says, how could I sin against God? And he runs, literally runs out of the house. He runs away from the temptation. And if you know the story, you know, he left his jacket behind and she's embarrassed. So she makes up this whole story. Um, but Joseph just decides, you know what? I'm going to run away from sin. Now she's definitely sinning against both her husband and against God. She's a disaster to say the least. But Joseph knows there's a God over everything, and he's with me. That changes his behavior. So I don't want to spend like a ton of time on it, uh, because it's not the big idea, but, but we really have to take the opportunity to just address the issue of sexual temptation, because we live in a culture where it's everywhere. Our kids are bombarded with it at much younger ages than any adults in the room were. It's on TV, it's on the internet, it's a cultural conversation, it's not just a singles problem. Uh, there are plenty of married people everywhere who are just as lonely as anyone else. And when you feel lonely, it becomes easy to cave into things like uh, flirting with someone at the office, getting online, jumping on Facebook to connect with that person you haven't seen in two decades. Those things become easy because, get this, when we're lonely, when we're disappointed, when we're waiting, it's easy for us to justify destructive behaviors, for us to justify rebellious behaviors because I'm lonely right now. My needs aren't being met right now. That's why, right? We have like this, uh, we have this crutch or this scapegoat. It's easy for us to cave in to those kinds of things, but, but, but learn from Joseph's story in this area. See the whole picture. Joseph goes a different direction. When that temptation comes in, surely he's lonely right now, but what does he do? He literally sprints away from the temptation. Uh, listen, do what Joseph did. Caving into that kind of temptation will destroy everything good in your life. Some of you have been affected by that, and you know what I'm talking about. Run away. If I believe that in the beginning there was God, and he's with me, that should dictate my behavior. So Joseph resists. She's embarrassed. She makes accusations. Joseph ends up in prison. He's done nothing wrong. He's a good person. Uh, he's a righteous person. He ends up in prison. And uh, it's interesting because in previous weeks, we saw Adam and Eve, and they, like, they screwed up, right? They rebelled against God, and there was consequences. Um, and then the next week, we saw uh, Abraham and Sarah, and they screwed up, right? They brought Hagar into the scene and decided that's how God wanted to get to the promised child. Uh, and there was consequences. I got made a mess. Not surprisingly, Sarah ended up not liking Hagar that much. Uh, I can't believe that. But in Joseph's case, he hasn't done anything wrong. He's, he's suffering. He's waiting for God to come through for him. But he, none of it's his fault. So what does he do while he's waiting? Does he complain and feel like a victim? I wouldn't blame him if he did. But he does exactly what you would do in this situation if you believed that in the beginning there was a sovereign God over everything and he's with me. This is what he does. Uh, 3920, it says, But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes 
of the prison warden. So Joseph does what he always does. He lives as if God is with him. And it ends up that the king's cupbearer and the king's baker kind of, there's a dust up of some kind in the, in the uh, palace and they end up in trouble. So they're there in prison and uh, he strikes up a relationship with them and, uh, and Joseph is able to help them out while they're there in prison by interpreting uh, some of their dreams. And uh, when they get ready to release them, uh, the cupbearer is like, hey, thanks so much for helping us get out of here, Joseph. Uh, when I get back to the palace, man, I'm totally telling the king about you. Don't you even worry about it, Joe. I'm going to take care of you. Uh, but Genesis 40, 23 says the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And for two more years, Joseph sat in prison, waiting, waiting. Remember last week we said faith sometimes requires waiting. Uh, that can be agonizing, uh, to say the least. I'm going to ask the band if you guys will hop up here uh, real quick. Stick with me, though, while they're, while they're getting in place. By now, Joseph has spent years in slavery and in prison for nothing. Okay, so imagine what that feels like for him. He's trusting God, but he's still waiting. He's believing God, but he's still waiting. He's worshiping God. He's serving God. And yet the waiting continues. You know what that's like? Have you, have you felt that before? God, I'm leaning on you. I know that you're there and you can come through, but I'm still... I'm still waiting for that to happen. That's Joseph's agony. Maybe you're waiting for healing. Maybe you're waiting for a loved one to come home or you're for waiting for a marriage that's gone cold to get warm again. Maybe you're waiting to land a job. Maybe you're waiting for the, the cloud of depression to break so that you can see and feel alive again. You're waiting and hoping, but the waiting continues. Uh, I know what it's like to be in a season of waiting. Uh, believe it or not, pastors get discouraged too. Uh, that's, that's happened to me before. Um, I get all of that. Uh, can we agree that sometimes the wait for God to come through and change our situation is really painful? I, I think most of us can understand that. Uh, today, there's a bunch of people in this room and a bunch of people listening online who are waiting for their situation to change, hoping praying daily on an ongoing basis that somehow today will be the day that God will break through and change the circumstance. I get that. During a period of my life a few years ago, I was just in this cloud of disappointment. Uh, lasted probably a year or so. Really a hard time. And Brandy emailed me this link to a, a song that was about waiting. And uh, I've asked the band to sing it today. Uh, they have graciously agreed to do that. Uh, I probably listened to the song three or four times a day for a solid eight, nine months, and truthfully, it kept me alive. It's the only thing that kept my hope alive. The pain of waiting is real, but it helped my resolve to know that God is with me, which means there's another side to all of this. So if you're there and you're waiting, this is for you.